Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the In Conversation podcast, a joint production of Oxford University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Daniel Solove and Woodrow Hartzog, authors of the book Breached, Why Data Security Law Fails and How to Improve It. Daniel, Woodrow, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you could start off by telling our listeners something about yourselves. Sure. Um, So I'm a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School, uh, and I have been teaching and writing about privacy uh, for close to 25 years now. And I'm a professor of law and computer science at Northeastern University. I have also been teaching and writing about uh, privacy law and data protection law and data security law for quite some time. And we have been, Dan and I have been working together on a number of different articles for uh, several different, on several different topics in, in several different years. Now, the two of you have written a book that is about uh data security law, but it's a focused one that talks about the flaws in it. What led the two of you to write this book now? So that's a great question. Dan and I actually had originally set out to try and study the law of the Federal Trade Commission years ago, uh, which is the nation's in the United States, the the major privacy regulator. And we got to looking into their actions and it turned out that they had been filing a lot of complaints against companies for having very poor data security practices, that there were many prominent breaches and that there were lots of laws around it. And as we started digging into that, we realized that the law around data security was kind of haphazard. And it was a little bit all over the place, and there wasn't a really sort of set uh, law that you could look to and say, okay, this is the law of data security, this has got all the rules, and and we know what's going on. And so we decided that the subject merited a little more scrutiny. And this was compounded by the fact that when we first started researching data security law in the 2000s and 2010s, we noticed a very interesting trend. So when we first started researching privacy generally, data breaches were a relatively rare occurrence. The term breached is actually relatively new. It was invented in the late 1990s and 2000s to refer to the acquisition, the unauthorized acquisition, uh, access and acquisition of personal information. We started calling it breached. And when breaches started happening in the early 2000s, starting with the choice point breach and a little after, we noticed that it almost made front page news. It was something that lots of people worried about. It was a, a very big ticket news item. And one of the th- trends that we started to notice is that breaches started to increase at a really significant rate. So starting around 2005, maybe heading into 2007 and 2008, media entities started to say, oh, wow, this is a really big year for data breaches. So there was, for example, the TJ Maxx data breach. And media entities, the journalistic outlets would say, okay, this 
right here is the year of the data breach. We should really do something <laughs> about this problem, right? And the uh, next year, they would say, oh, we were wrong about it. This is actually the year of the data breach. There's the Anthem hack and the you know, target breach. And this 2010 is the year of the data breach. And one of the things that we noticed is that 2011 was the year of the data breach. And 2012 was the year of the data breach. And 2013 was the year of the data breach. And on and on it went. And it turns out that every single year since about 2007 has been dubbed the year of the data breach with no end in sight. Data breaches have become an epidemic with uh, no meaningful way for us to pull back on it, at least from a, a legal perspective. And that's what really led us to dig into this book to, to try to understand where has the law gone wrong and why are we so off course with respect to trying to mitigate this incredible scourge of data breaches that just keeps getting worse and worse. Now, how is it that you propose that we change the law? I mean, it's, you know, so what exactly is, is flawed in the approach and, and, and what does that say more broadly about how we sometimes misunderstand the, the, the issue that we face with data breaches? Well, I think I'll start with uh, some of the reasons why the existing law is flawed. And then out of that, uh, our solutions emerge. Uh, and, and it's a rather long uh, thing to get into. So I, I think I'll, I'll just mainly focus on what, 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 what's wrong with the existing law. Um, and what we've seen after the uh, breaches started coming into the news is that we saw actually a pretty remarkable response by lawmakers, uh, a lot of privacy law, sorry, security laws have been passed. Uh, the laws are, and, and what we've seen in the law are, are three types of law that uh, address this, and all of them have shortcomings. Um, the first type of law are data breach notification laws. These are laws that uh, require that if you have a breach, you have to notify uh, regulators and sometimes the affected individuals. The notification laws have been immensely popular. Uh, it started off in California. Uh, the first one was passed in 2003. Uh, this is what led to all the breaches being in the news, because one of the good things about the law is that it shined the light on breaches. Uh, breaches were certainly happening before this time, uh, but the reason we started hearing about them was now companies and organizations had a responsibility to report them. Uh, other states followed suit. And in just the span of about 15 years, every single state, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, have passed a data breach notification law. It spread to Europe. It spread to the, the GDPR. It spread to other countries around the world. It's an immensely popular response to data breach. But the problem with breach notification laws is that they're not really a cure for breaches. They don't prevent breaches and they don't really help fix breaches. All they do is require notification of a breach. So it's not really a solution to the problem. It's just a way to shine the light on the problem. It's kind of like basically a diagnosis that, hey, you have cancer, but that doesn't mean you have a 
prevention of cancer or a cure for cancer. It's just an indication that there's a problem. So that's really all notification laws do. uh, And it's not enough. Um, There's nothing inherently wrong with notification, uh, but oftentimes legislatures use it as the solution for data security when it's not a solution. Uh, Another type of law are safeguards laws. Um, These are laws that uh, require certain types of safeguards to protect data security. Um, uh, The laws come in two different types. Uh, Some are are uh, you know, list specific things that must be done. Um, and one of the problems with these ones uh, are that those specific things often become obsolete uh, and they're often treated by organizations as items on a checklist. And so they'll just check these things off, but there's very little attention to the quality or how they're done. Uh, and a lot of the things are basically just to um, you know, make things look good for a regulator, uh, but that doesn't actually translate to good security in the end. Uh, and other ones that require reasonableness, you, you should have reasonable security practices. But again, this really leaves companies without much of a sense of, well, what are we supposed to do? Um, and they know that regulators are going to look for specific types of security measures. Uh, and so they'll often just go and, and do those and, and that's, that's it. But those are not working. Uh, and then the last area of law are um, uh, lawsuits. Uh, people have brought lawsuits to sue for data breaches, uh, but the courts have not been very receptive to the lawsuits. A lot of the lawsuits have been thrown out of court, speak, uh, court because courts say there's no harm. Um, Uh, We think that's problematic because we think there really is harm in the event of a data breach, but it's often hard to prove harm. It's hard to trace harm back to a particular breach. Uh, A lot of times, uh, you know, if data has been obtained by a hacker, it's not clear what the hacker is going to do with it or when they're going to do something with it. It could be years later. uh, It could find its way on the dark web. Um, It could be used by identity thieves and and transferred and sold. Uh, But we might not know about that. Uh, It's very rare that that hackers are actually caught. So we're not going to get the hacker coming in and saying, aha, you know, this is what I did with this information. So uh, it becomes really tricky for the lawsuits to succeed. Uh, And even when they do, they don't really prevent breaches. They just add to the pain if there is a breach, Uh, which really goes to the overarching critique of all this law. And that is our our main point. Uh, And that is that the law fails, ironically, because it is so obsessed with the data breach. And the law actually is not stopping breaches because it is so focused on the breach. And what the law typically does is it comes in and tries to pummel the organization that had a breach. Uh, And that really doesn't do a whole lot. The organization that had the breach almost all the time has done something wrong. You know, they've they've had a security lapse here, a security lapse there. and there are reasons we'll talk about in the book why that that's happening. Um, but that's really hard to get a lot more improvement there. A little bit, but it, it's going to be hard to get a lot more. Uh, and even with that, the breaches are still occurring. Uh, so they pummel them a little bit more and add a little bit more to the pain, but they're already feeling a lot of pain. So 
adding a little bit more pain is not really creating a, a, a tremendous amount of deterrence. Uh, it's not really doing much. Uh, it's it just adding marginally to an already bad situation. Uh, and that's what the law does. And, and one of the problems with the law is that it's missing out on most of the problem. The problem with breaches that we, we argue in the book is that there really are a much larger problem with the entire data ecosystem. There are many, many players involved in a breach, and a lot with the breach happens before the breach occurs. There's a much larger story to be told. And what we're really telling in breach stories is just the last chapter where the breach happens. But there's all the stuff before that is leading to the problem. Many, many actors that are contributing to the problem, all of whom are neglected by the law. The law doesn't look at them. It's just looking at the tip of the iceberg and it's missing out on the rest. And if the law really wants to be effective, it needs to look at the whole iceberg or the whole story. I, I thought you did that a great job of demonstrating that in your uh, chapter where you have the history of data security, you, we, uh, which you know plays to to Woodrow's point where he was uh, earlier about how you know every year ends up being declared the year of the data breach because we have so many of these, and it gets to a point where the sheer scale of them, you know, underscores how difficult it is to 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 you know identify exactly where it happens. I mean, your data is stolen. Was it the target breach? Was it the TJ Maxx breach? Was it the you know the VA breach? I mean, exactly when does it happen? You can't pinpoint it, and it just points to both the the, the sheer scale of this and the fact that you know nothing that currently exists is stopping the breaches. If if uh, it, it's not even slowing them down, given the, the increase in the number. Yeah, that's right. It, it, in fact, it, one of the things that's been happening is that while breaches used to be front page news. When it happened, we now sort of roll our eyes and say, oh, gosh, it's another breach. Like, watch out. We've become so worn down through the years that when we receive, I mean, many of us, maybe most of us at this point have received probably a letter in the mail that said something to the effect of, oh, we're so sorry. We've lost your uh, personal information um, you know, here's a, uh, some free credit monitoring or, or something along those lines. And we say, okay, fine. And maybe we enact the credit monitoring. Maybe we change our, our usernames and passwords, but we've just become worn down. And I, I fear that we, that lawmakers, Dan and I in the book talk about how lawmakers certainly are paying attention to the problem, but they've been really focusing on this narrow sort of set of rules, like, like what Dan said, the, the safeguards, the notifications, the lawsuits. And we really have sort of hit, I think, maybe a lack of imagination about what a full uh a full-throated approach to data security would look like. And, and that, we think, is one of the reasons why the breach epidemic has really continued to, to significantly escalate. And I'll also point out, too, that it, it's going to get a lot worse. Uh, right now, almost all the big major organizations have been breached. 
Uh, if you name a company, no matter how big, rich, and powerful it might be, it's been breached and typically not just breached once, but multiple, multiple times. Um, and we're moving into a world where we're relying on personal data that is becoming ever more sensitive uh, and uh, more difficult to change. So as now organizations are gathering people's biometric information, well, it's one thing if they lose your password and you have to go and change your password, but what if they lose your eyes or your face print or your fingerprint? Uh, these are things that you can't really change. Uh, maybe in the movies, like Minority Report, where uh, the main character changed his eyes. Uh, but in real life, you, you, you can't change these things, but we're, we're subjecting them to a security regime that is woefully insecure. Uh, we are, I think, in a world where uh, security is incredibly weak, uh, and our information is very vulnerable, uh, but we're increasingly putting more and more sensitive information into the system uh, in the hopes that somehow, some way, things are just going to magically get better. Uh, and unfortunately, what we see is they're getting worse and worse and worse every year, which is uh, a recipe for a pretty disastrous future. So you've both explained the uh, challenges that we face with data security and and and, and the, the strengths and weaknesses with the status quo. I was wondering if you could now perhaps elaborate a bit on your the 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 path that you chart in the second part of the book about your vision for holistic data security. What exactly is holistic data security and what would some of the components of, of data secure of this holistic uh, view be? I'll jump in on this one to start, uh, and, and we've got a lot of uh, components of it um, and things to say about this, uh, but most broadly, um, holistic data security is addressing all of the actors that contribute to the problem. It's addressing the entire story and the entire data ecosystem, because security is not just a problem at the organizations that are breached. It's a larger systemic problem based on a system that is flawed and that has a lot of actors that are doing a lot of things without adequate accountability. Uh, and we go through some of the different types of actors. We define these types of players that are doing things that are undermining security, that make things less secure, and a lot of them get a pass. So a few quick examples of this. Uh, Manufacturers of software and, and devices, a lot of companies make software and devices that are not very secure, uh, that have terrible security. A lot of the home video cameras, for example, have awful security. They have you know, built-in default passwords and uh, that, that people don't have to change when they use the device and they often don't change them. Um, sometimes they have even less security than that. Uh, and these become weapons that hackers can use to deliver attacks. They can readily take over these cameras uh, with, with, with armies of bots that then can attack other websites so the cameras and, and these devices don't just affect the people who buy them, but they affect everybody and they undermine security for everybody. But a buyer of these devices um, 
they're not going to know what good security is or and the market doesn't really respond to this but these sellers of these devices can go and sell these devices with shoddy security with no repercussions they just do it it harms everybody and they get away with it uh, and that is something that makes everybody less secure that's just one example. Another example, you have companies that amass massive amounts of personal data, and then they store it in the system without adequate segmentation. And so a hacker breaks in and they get the mother load. They get all this information because these companies have collected it, um, often with no accountability to the people they're collecting the information about. Uh, and then they store it in ways that are you know, convenient for them, but not necessarily the most secure. Uh, and hackers know that if they break into this target, they're they're getting a ton of data, uh, and they do, and they get all this data. Um, that's another problem. Uh, yet another one are uh, where companies will um, miseducate people. We call these miseducators. Um, we try to teach people in security good basic advice on how to avoid phishing, on good etiquette for not falling for phishing scams. And that's typically, you know, don't click on an email that asks for your password. Um, you know, don't click on, you know, links and emails where you don't know where it's going to. Um, don't click on attachments to emails from unknown senders. You know, if email looks a little dicey or off, you don't, don't click on it. But yet legitimate companies keep pushing out emails that are like this. So in effect, it's undermining the training. If you tell people, hey, don't do all this, but then legitimate companies start doing it, it means that the training that you're giving them is 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 being undermined. Uh, and this happens constantly where uh, yeah, people are told advice, but then it's not really clear because others are messing up the message. Uh, and yeah, it's like, you know, a teacher's trying to teach a class and then someone in the back is shouting uh, the opposite points. Uh, that makes it really hard for people to learn and improve when it comes to fishing and other things. Which And then we wonder, why do people fall for this stuff? Well, it's because legitimate companies will, will, will do this type of thing. Uh, so that's another problem. And, and there are many, many, many more um, uh, examples that we provide in the book of actors that are uh, creating things, doing things that are, are making the system a lot riskier, undermining security. And yet the law ignores them. It gives them a pass. Uh, they have no accountability and they can keep doing it. It, it strikes me as I was reading your book that it, it seems like whenever when you're, you're they're trying to walk that line between uh, security and ease of use. They always, the companies always seem to fall in favor of ease of use and how that creates a lot of these opportunities. Like they, you're never forced to change your password. Your your uh, when you get a lot of these devices, it's just you know you can change your password, but we don't want to make it more difficult because then we might you know lose a sale in favor of someone who you know can trumpet their ease of use, even though it becomes more vulnerable. That's always going to be a, it's always a trade-off with security because, um, you know, if you ask someone, you know, what, what's the goal of security? A lot of people might say, well, it's to keep it totally secure. Uh, but actually that's not really the goal because perfect security means no access to data and no use of data. Shut off the internet if you want perfect security. So we know that there's always going to be risks when it comes to security because 
We do want people to have access to, to data. We do want things to be convenient. And if we make things too hard for people, they don't do it. Uh, and then they find end runs around it and it makes it even worse. So that really makes security almost like an art. It, it's a very delicate balance uh, because if you ask too much, it fails. If you ask too little, it fails. Uh, so you really have to hit it just right. Uh, and, it, and and that's what's really tricky uh, when, when it comes to this. Yeah. And it's a great point. I think that when you're trying to get that balance just right, one of the things that we've seen the law not be great at is making sure that the incentives are right for companies. Because you're right, if companies can skimp on security, particularly where it would cost them money, then they probably will. And we've also seen that's how the checklist approach becomes just a rote sort of exercise in formality rather than something meaningful because they just want to sort of get through the the checklist and, and spend as little money as possible. So we need more structural interventions, I think, to shore up the incentives of companies to make sure that their incentives are aligned with good security, as well as this careful balance so that we're not trying to achieve perfect security. Because like Dan says, the only way to achieve perfect security is to take the all the servers storing data in the world and just put them in a wood chipper. Because, <laughs> because there's a there's a way to to achieve that balance. And the law needs to take a much more hands-on role in helping set those incentives. That's one of the things that that we argue for in the book. I was saying we've been addressing, uh, you know, in a very broad sense, the, the, the points you make about uh, what, you know, are the elements of holistic data security. Uh, you're talking about mitigating risk. You're talking about redistributing responsibility. You're, you're talking about the human factor. I was wondering if you could perhaps maybe discuss each of these points more specifically, like, for example, what does it mean to mitigate risk when it comes to the question of data security? And, and how can we do that in law? Well, one way we talk about is that, you know, it, breaches are going to be inevitable. Um, no matter how, you know, much we do, they're going to be breaches. Uh, and if we don't aim to throw all the servers in a wood chipper, um, we have to be reconciled to the fact that breaches will occur. But there are things that we can do to lessen the likelihood of breaches and also to lessen the harm that breaches cause. Uh, and this the law often does not do. Uh, it doesn't seek to mitigate the harm of breaches. In fact, the law actually enhances the harm of breaches. Uh, we talk about how in, uh, in in one chapter we talk about, we ask the question, what's the worst password ever created? And the answer is the social security number, because this is something that companies use to authenticate identity. The idea is that if you know your social security number, you must be you. Now, this is absurd. Uh, and the identity thieves all chuckle at this and use the social security number as their best tool to break into accounts uh, because it's a tremendously great tool. So many organizations use it to authenticate identity. Uh, and and, and, and you, as you pointed out in the book, not only that, there are companies that sell 
people's social security numbers, and it's completely legal to do so. Exactly. The law allows, first of all, the law mandates that people have this number, and then it allows for the sale of the number, uh, and it doesn't protect the number. Uh, Governments put the people's social security number online in public records, so it's readily available. uh, So a thief can buy it, or they can just find it in a public record, as well as all sorts of other information that could be useful, such as date of birth and people's addresses and uh, so on and so forth. They also then, um, but, but here's how you could mitigate the harm of a breach. The law were to say that using a social security number to authenticate identity is not allowed, that companies can't do this anymore. Then uh, the social security number is in a sense, um, you know, defanged. It, it it doesn't cause the damage that it did. If a company now is breached and loses social security numbers, but the social security number can't be used to break into anything, it's just a number. It's not anything more. It doesn't actually cause the harm. The reason it causes the harm is because the law allows it to cause the harm. Uh, but if that were to stop, it wouldn't be so harmful. Uh, so that's just one way that the law could readily mitigate the risk of harm in a data breach, but it doesn't do it. I was wondering if you could perhaps speak now to how uh, this issue of redistributing responsibility, because uh, as you explained in the beginning, the burden is upon the companies that are breached. And, and speaking as, as as an American, I mean, I, 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 I my first thought is as it should be, but how could making the responsibility more, uh, you know, shifting responsibility around lead to improved data security? Well, if all the, the comp- if, if all the contributors have responsibility, we would see better devices, devices that aren't made with shoddy security. Uh, the market isn't adequate to make these devices more secure. So the law needs to step in and say, hey, if you create a product that is faulty on security, you're going to be responsible. You know, companies can't go like, you know, I, I, I can't go and I, and make like a, a flammable clothing. I, I can't go and, and, and create food that that's toxic and, and dangerous. Um, I can't make a car that's going to just spontaneously blow up. Um, if I do any of these things, the law has an answer, right? It says, no way you can't do it. And there are all sorts of uh, systems in place to prevent it from inspections to uh, liability uh, to all sorts of other uh, ways that the law curtails doing this. Yet when it comes to software, anything goes. When it comes to making a device, anything goes. Um, I think if the law were to start holding these other actors more responsible to at least a reasonable standard of care, the devices would be safer. Um, you, you would shore up a lot of the risks this way. Uh, and that's, you know, the, the, the goal w- would be to make these other actors that contribute to the problem more responsible. And if you hold them more responsible, that distributes the risk away from the organizations that have the breach. And it's true that everybody is at fault here. Certainly those companies are at fault in most cases, but so are a lot of other people. Uh, but if you only try to hit one and hold one actor responsible, the other actors are still going to be contributing to the problem, uh, and that's and that's 
that's part of the problem. How can we change the law to reduce bad practices? Because it it, it seems that uh, that that's you know there's an element of perhaps common sense involved. But you're but you're how, what ways can we change the law so as to ensure that people are not you know getting into those bad habits? So I think there's several different ways. In the book, we talk about, as you said, making sure that all of the actors are held responsible for ensuring good data security. And and in this way, we borrow a page from public health law, where public health law has some remarkable similarities to data security law. And we're not the first people to notice that. There have been several scholars that have, have drawn this connection, but we even sort of use the same terms like, like virus, for example. Uh, it's the same sort of terminology. And we, we want to hold all of the actors responsible. But another thing that we argue that we should focus on is making sure that all the actions that imperil our data are taken, uh, are mitigated. By lawmakers. So in other words, the standard sort of action that lawmakers tend to target is, you might say, building up a fence to keep the bad guys out. The idea of classical data security law is make sure that you use encryption and that you have paywall, you know, authentication walls and that things are very difficult and that they're stored in a secure way. And we have this envision of, of a lock. The, the front of our book is a, is a padlock, which is the physical instantiation of security. But part of what we try to get into in the book is that there's a lot to securing data that is more than just building up a wall so high that the bad guys can't get in. For example, one of the ways in which lawmakers could intervene is actually not necessarily by improving data security safeguards rules, but rather emboldening our privacy rules. And let me explain a little what we what I mean what we mean by that. So data security sits at the intersection of two overlapping areas of law. One is cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is literally the security of, of cyber physical systems. The, we're talking about power grids, we're talking about things as, as diverse as the business-to-business Internet of Things, and a lot of other critical infrastructure protections, as well as the protection of personal information systems. But there's another area of law that deals with how information is collected and used and shared, and that's information privacy law. And one of the interesting things about data security, which resides right at the intersection of cybersecurity and privacy law, is that it really hasn't well incorporated the wisdom of these two separate areas. And we, in a chapter on... Uh, in the book, we talk about how one way to lawmakers could make data security better is to embolden privacy rules. And there are several reasons why, one of which is privacy, while data security law tends to protect the back door, it keeps the uh, criminals from getting in, sliding in undetected through some vulnerability that wasn't patched in a software system, but 
one of the questions that we ask is why would criminals go through the effort of trying to get through the back door if they can just straight up purchase that information from a data broker uh, in violation of a lot of people's notions of privacy? And so uh, we, we argue for much stricter rules about how data is collected and used and sold specifically. Another aspect that we argue heavily in favor of is the concept of data minimization, which is the idea that you should not collect information unless you need it for a particular purpose. And when you're done with it, you should delete it uh, for that particular purpose. And the reason why we argue this is known as a data privacy rule, data protection rule around the world, but we argue that this is also a key component of data security. And the reason why is that information that doesn't exist cannot be hacked. And so we argue that instead of just making data minimization a component of the privacy rules, and who knows whether that's going to get passed anytime soon, why not take data minimization and make it a key data security component as well? We think that data security, there seems to be a lot of legislative efforts and desire to do something about data security, privacy law on its own has sort of stalled out in Congress. So why not take data minimization, one of, we think, the most important data protection rules and make it part of data security law as a direct way to immediately improve the data, the security of our personal information uh, almost overnight if, if we pass that rule. It, it seems that at, at the heart of a lot of these issues that you describe in the book, there's, there's inevitably the human factor that you know, that a lot of it boils down to the, the practices that we as users do with our security, such as you know cleverly coming up with the word password for password, figuring that nobody's ever going to figure that out. Or as you point out, uh, as you pointed out earlier, clicking on that email that we shouldn't be clicking on. How can we change the law so as to reduce that 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 human the impact of that human factor in terms of making uh, data unsecure? That's right. In the book, we talk a lot about this, the idea that if you were to just look at a breach at the surface level, many times there is a you might be tempted to conclude that it was just some human blunder, that if we could just tell this individual, don't click on that link or how could you download that piece of software and that created a vulnerability, or how could you leave that laptop sitting in the car, or whatever it is, then maybe that's the way in which we could solve breaches. And we just, just need more personal responsibility, and people just need to take care of their own business a little better, and that would solve the, the breach epidemic. But in the book, we argue, actually, that's not the right way to look at it, because humans have structural and systemic vulnerabilities where we're always going to be one of the most vulnerable and contingent parts of any system. And we talk about three particular problems that have to be considered by lawmakers that so far have not. So the first one, as you note, is the bandwidth problem. So I don't know about you, but I'm barely sort of keeping it together on a daily basis. And when confronted with all of these rules about, oh, you have to have 17,000 different passwords and they have to, they can't resemble anything and the 
modern English language and they have to have a symbol and uh, all of these rules, then that it's confusing to people, it's bewildered. And frankly, we just don't have the cognitive resources and the time resources to adequately devote to these practices. And so when organizations and lawmakers create these rules that have specifically these requirements built into them, they're asking the impossible of people and then blaming them when they fail. And so one of the things that we have to do is make sure that our rules are human resistant or at least made with human bandwidth limitations in mind. We also have to consider the second problem that we get into in the book is what we call the uh, the carelessness problem, which is individuals, because we have a lot going on, because we tend to be absent-minded, we're going to be careless. We're going to accidentally write the password on a post-it note and leave it where everybody can see it, maybe even stuck. We've, there have been several instances where it's literally stuck to the computer monitor at work where anyone could log in and access the personnel files. So in and we have to anticipate that carelessness in advance and do things like create redundancies, for example. We need to implement things like two-factor authentication that anticipate the carelessness uh, of individuals, the fact that we're going to write the password down, that someone's going to guess it, and have a backup system set up to catch us when we fall, and we inevitably will. And then the third problem and this is a much harder problem to address that we talk a little bit about in the book, is the gullibility problem. It's sort of like the X-Files. We want to believe so badly, and criminals know that. And when they're trying to get someone to click on that link or take a particular action that's going to compromise a data set, it's all too easy for them to convince us to do it. And I'll tell a story uh, that's 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 not really in the book uh, so much, but uh, I was out to dinner one night and I got an email from my dean and I was new to the faculty at Northeastern and a very eager and willing uh, faculty member and I wanted to help out. And the email said, uh, are you around and available? I need your help with something for faculty recruiting. And it sure enough was, in fact, faculty recruiting season. And I knew that we had some candidates coming into town for, for dinner and, and talks and the like. And so I responded immediately and said, oh, of course, how can I help you? Just let me know. I'll, I'll be there. And the email from my dean responded and said, here's what I need. I need you to go out and buy 50 gift cards for me. And I said, oh, no, I've fallen for the oldest trick in the book, the fishing buy me gift card trick. I write about this for a living. And yet somehow I fell for a, at least initially, thankfully, I recognized at that point and didn't go through with it. But I fell for a well-targeted phishing attempt. And this sort of thing is going to happen continually because we as humans are gullible and we want to believe. And so we need to also build in additional um, rules that like redundancies, for example, that will catch us when we become gullible as well. And so in the book, we talk about ways in which the design of information technologies might be better done in order to accommodate our inherent 
weaknesses, security weaknesses as humans. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you, the two of you tell us what you're working on now? Dan, I'll let you go first on that one if you'd like. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm working on a paper on privacy rights, uh, arguing about some of the limitations in how those rights uh, will uh, protect privacy. I think law over relies on privacy rights as a mechanism to protect privacy. I'm also writing a few other pieces on privacy law. I'm, I'm now looking at privacy and how regulation of privacy is falling short and what it needs to do to improve. And I, Dan and I work in similar circles. So I'm working on what uh, legislation, privacy legislation around the concept of data loyalty would look like in combination with Professor Neil Richards at Washington University. We think that this could be a way to move beyond the standard notice and choice proposals that we've seen so far in the in the world of privacy. And I'm also working with philosopher Evan Selinger and my PhD student Joanna Gunnowin on uh, the normalization of surveillance uh, and how we've become accustomed through the proliferation of Amazon ring cameras and, and uh, constantly being monitored in the workplace to sort of a slow but inevitable normalization of all different kinds of surveillance tools. Oh, all sound like fascinating projects. I wish you the best of luck with them. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.